Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 187 is, what are the appropriate limits for free expression? And we read the Stanford Encyclopedia article on freedom of speech by David Van Mill, Stanley Fish's article, There's No Such Thing as Free Speech and It's a Good Thing Too, from 1994, and Joel Feinberg's article, Limits to the Free Expression of Opinion, from 1975. For more information, please check out PartiallyExaminedLife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, neither hater nor player in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, practicing non-violation of the harm principle in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey guys, before we get started, I got something I got to share with you. I got this book by Michael Perry, who's a Wisconsin author, called Montaigne and Barn Boots for my dad for Christmas. And I got it for myself and I haven't read it yet. But we have a shout out in that book. Hmm, really? On page 29, he says, in an episode of the Partially Examined Life podcast, one of the hosts comments on Montaigne's lovely non-aristocratic air, but questions whether he understood how privileged he was. Despite all I wrote above, I believe he did understand. So that's the quote. Hmm, nice. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. I'm glad he exercised his freedom of speech. <laughs> So this is a topic-oriented one. We should not spend a lot of time. We've already done free speech a little bit, like with Spinoza and then with Mill. In fact, the Mill episode was going to be the free speech episode, but we decided to just make it on Mill. But in both the Spinoza and the, the Mill, we ended up spending some time kind of arguing over our textual interpretations, which is our normal thing to do for a text-oriented episode. I would think in this, we maybe want to kind of set those aside a little bit and try to focus up mostly on the, the ideas here because we had, I mean, we have these two main texts, the Feinberg and the Fish that I'm sure we'll quote quite a bit from. We had a whole bunch of other optional things. We had the Stanford Encyclopedia article that kind of sums up a lot of the debates that have been going on. It'd be interesting to see us again, try our hand at a actually topic oriented thing and putting forward what our opinions are or laying out here, what the live issues are and not getting sucked into textual analysis. Does that seem reasonable? It does, especially in light of the fact that I didn't really choose the greatest readings. I think Feinberg and Fish were the right people. You know, Feinberg wrote a book in which he spent some time on, I think he calls it the offense principle and where things stand with hate speech. And I sort of imagine when I looked at his article, I was very happy to find that article because I thought it was kind of a compressed version of his book. And I somehow hallucinated that I saw the relevant part in there, but it wasn't that relevant. And the fish, he's the right person, but I'm not sure it's the strongest 
sort of argument that we encounter there. But yeah, I think doing this topically is the right way to go. I'll be interested. I, I really like the fish article. Me too. I thought it was pure sophistry. So, <laughs> <laughs> Is that the way you feel about fish in general? Yes, yes. I think there's probably no greater sophist in American society right now than fish. Wow. I know I've said that about many people, so take that <laughs> with a grain of salt. <laughs> You're just bringing out your anti-postmodernist grind. I mean, it's more than that. I, I don't even know if I'm anti-postmodernist. Let's get topical and avoid, yeah. We'll, get well it. it would be nice to just lay out how these various readings, including, so another one that, how many people, I did read John Milton's Aeropogitica. Is that how you say it? I couldn't do it. I didn't have time. And when I started reading it, I, it was so hard to read because of the language. I just said no. Well, and the first couple pages are really hard to get through because they're... Yeah, you have to get beyond that and then get into the swing of things. But just to lay out sort of where they and Mill lie on this debate, that Milton in particular, so his book was, it's an essay from 1644 and is sort of the big precursor to John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. It's like, you know, it's 200 years before. He was arguing specifically about, should we have a central censor that has to approve every single publication, which is not a live issue for us, hopefully. Not in the U.S. Yes. For most of the rest of the world, it's true. By population. Not beforehand. So you could be punished post hoc. Yes. But you're not submitting books to censors first. But you could, if you were a Holocaust denialist, for instance, in Germany, I think, or maybe it's just Austria. But yeah, you could be punished. And in fact, a certain guy, I think he was imprisoned, huh? The same way it works in China, right? Is that the way it works? Mm. You get punished post hoc, or they just filter out your internet, right? Yeah, so I think, yeah, in China, they try and nip it in the bud. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of internet regulation and blocking. and yeah. So a lot of the arguments that we went over in the Mill episode ultimately came from or were updates, you know, secular updates of arguments that Milton had given 200 years or so before about how we should really have all the ideas out there because that's what our reason needs to sort through things. And it sort of respects our autonomy to have, you know, if people are dumb enough to be corrupted by bad ideas, they're actually going to be dumb enough that they're even going to be corrupted by good books is one of Milton's points. So we saw that in the in the mill, and Mill is usually taken as the advocate of unrestricted free speech. But as Feinberg points out, actually Mill acknowledged right up front that there's whole classes of things that are obviously harmful speech, like defamation and sedition and other things. So Feinberg's article is actually laying out what those exceptions he thinks are and considering some of the philosophical issues involved in them. Those are cases in which speech is intimately connected to action. So in the cases of those prohibitions, it's not so much about the content. It's about what you're doing, what the speech act is. So if you're inciting panic or something, the fire in a crowded theater example. It's not that, that there's fire in a crowded theater is a horrible opinion to hold. <laughs> if you thought of that in his opinion, it's a specific incitement to people to do something that leads to actual material harm. So it still, I think, falls within the rubric of Mill's harm principle. And Mill, as a utilitarian, he adopts this more or less unrestricted outside of these categories, free speech 
doctrine because he thinks that it's going to bring the most happiness to the most people. It's going to satisfy the utilitarian principle. So it's actually, it's not that free speech is great in itself. It's not because we want to hear ourselves talk. It's because the effects are positive overall, Mill thinks, for allowing unrestricted free speech. And so Fish runs with that. Oh, actually, I should say first. So the Stanford article actually starts out by saying, look, speech is always for some purpose. So it's really arguing about what the purpose is, where you come down on what sort of speech should be restricted. Speech that does not fulfill or runs directly counter to whatever the purpose is that you were advocating for free speech is at least a candidate for restriction. And Fish takes this very literally that he thinks that the foundation of any sort of forum, whether you're talking about a university or just the political forum, you know, TV ads for political, that there's always built into whatever the forum, some sort of rules of engagement, and that these themselves are a political construction that's been put together over time. They are not neutral with regard to what is being said. And we should just acknowledge that, that there could be, if you say, as Mill seems to, as Milton seems to, that the purpose of free speech is to support participatory democracy, then you can make an argument that hate speech, for instance, actually doesn't support participatory democracy. It's trying to rule a whole class of citizens out of the democratic project. And so that would be an argument for saying that that's okay to limit that. And Fish thinks that that is not a bug in the argument. That's actually a feature. So this is, this is, I think, the, the difficult thing for us to lay out in this episode. I see a lot of connections between what Fish has to say and what we saw in Gadamer and other. Just you would expect that given that Mill is part of the Enlightenment tradition, that probably a lot of philosophers we have discussed without going full-blown postmodernists, there's probably some subtlety available that folks like Simone de Beauvoir and, and Gadamer and people like that have drawn on that could enrich this discussion. I'd like to start out just also by asking that we agree upon some nomenclature. So all the newer articles make a distinction between spoken and written. So, you know, publication or written content or speech, so to speak, versus spoken speech or a speech act in that sense. And also, I think when I read Mill, you could read Mill and say, He's not talking about freedom of speech. He's talking about freedom of opinion and freedom of expression of opinion. And so really, I think there's the holding the idea itself or the opinion. There's expressing that opinion. And then there's the context in which you express that opinion, all of which matter with respect to determining whether something is violating either the legal or the social norms in a society. And so I just ask that, at the very least, we keep that in mind when we talk about it, because if we just use speech, generally speaking, I think we'll run into some confusions and possibly confuse the audience a little bit. I think we're going to run into those kinds of confusions a lot. I don't know if we can agree on the terminology as much as just explain ourselves along the way, because you know we're going to get all kinds of things that are very much like speech acts, but might not even involve vocalization for just like, or for instance, just writing, which might be a little bit of splitting hairs on my part, but there's distinctions to be made on all of those. So I take the point. It's a thorny, complicated thing when you start reading through it and thinking about it. We just have to articulate ourselves along the way. 
Okay. I mean, but is my point makes sense. I think there's, that's part of the challenge in, in unpacking this. Well, you're getting at the core of the exceptions that are carved out by Feinberg, right? So if I go up to someone and yell racial epithets at them, that's not speech per se. And in fact, it wouldn't have to be racial epithets. It wouldn't even have to have any content. If I went up to someone and yelled gibberish at them, it's not the content of the speech that's at issue. It's the act. Now, granted, if there are racial epithets or other sorts of epithets, you know, you could argue that there's a greater level of incitement there. But a lot of it is about getting in someone's face in an aggressive way, in which case, in the law, that's called fighting words. And you could reasonably expect someone to retaliate even violently in those situations. You don't have a right to do that. So I think, Seth, what you're talking about is free speech conjures up this idea that anything that involves us speaking is somehow allowable, which of course is not the case. It's more about our expression of our opinions and not about other acts. So for instance, intimidating people, threatening people, making people feel unsafe and things like that. And the thorny part gets to the question of safety. If people are saying, well, someone giving a speech somewhere that they think is racist or writing it, putting it in a book makes them feel unsafe in the same way that fighting words might, that then you start to get into a more difficult areas. Well, I mean, it has to do with either expectations of harm to happen or how we understand what reasonable harm is. I mean, it gets us back to the mill in the first place, that part of what's at issue is how much harm can you hold someone liable for and how much harm should a person expect that they can avoid. In no case have we read that the speech, like anything else, is completely unfettered. It's really an argument about what ways, what kinds of fettering you're going to have. Mill outlines a harm principle, and he admits, just like we've been saying, that there are plenty of cases where you can point easily to harm being there. The fire in crowded theater is a perfect example. But then it comes down to, well, I might say something that harms you, but that's okay. That doesn't rise to the right level of harm. So then it becomes an argument about what level of harm can you expect to have to tolerate. Yeah, I think there are a few questions there, like how close, well, so one of them, I think with the level of harm you're talking about, Dylan, is, is it the case that our offense, our hurt feelings constitute harm, which Mill argues very, very strongly against that idea. Yep. And then the question is whether you might conceive. Well, he he argues uh, against that idea. Hold on. In, in, you know, it might be offensive if you express atheism. Like that's the kind of thing he has in mind. That that's if I'm offended by you being an atheist, that's not a legitimate ground for restriction. But if we take Feinberg's word for it, that he's already at the beginning of the essay setting aside issues of defamation, say, yeah. then or invasions of privacy, the fact that I say that you're a homosexual or something like that. Yeah, but that's not that, about being offended. That's about actual harm done to you. Right. It's not just that I was offended by those things that you call, you say I plagiarize something. It's not that that offends me in the same way being called a racial epithet might offend me. The racial epithet has no content exactly except that I hate you or that you're an inferior being. And the, the libelous or the defamatory claim is something specific that I'm, you know, factual that I'm meant to have done, which can affect my reputation, my livelihood, it can deprive me of a job, things like that. 
Yeah, I think then the argument is a discussion of when is it sticks and stones and when is it just words? Yeah, but if you call me a racist for one of my articles online, generally that's going to be protected. It's not defamatory, even if it's false and because it's an interpretive matter of your opinion, that would offend me greatly. (laughs) But it doesn't matter that it offends me. It's not defamatory. It doesn't even matter in that case that it's false, if it's false. Yeah, where we'll get into, where it gets more difficult is what kind of psychological harm do certain kinds of offense have? And whether or not you can be held liable for harming people in that respect. I mean, do we want the whole discussion to really just be about a philosophy of law discussion, which is what a lot of what we read today is about. But part of the lesson we got from Mill, I think, is that, and I think this very much resonates in the way people talk about freedom of speech as a live moral issue now. It's not just what should we advocate the state coming in and restricting, but what in any given forum, like an academic situation, which is not directly under the rubric of the state, is that organization going to be justified in some way in prohibiting this kind of speech? And so I think just, yeah, we shouldn't automatically say... Well, Mark, I'm offended. I'm offended that you'd interpret that comment that way. Just because we're talking about legal distinctions now doesn't mean that's going to be the whole conversation. So we have plenty of time to get to those other things. <laughs> the fact that, that, Wes, that you're immediately going to, it's not legitimate for the state, unless it's fighting words. I, I just, it's too easy for these discussions to be about the detailed and rich history of case law about how judges, you know, so Holmes and Brandeis are the names that are most often thrown around. I wasn't bringing up case law. I was bringing up basic distinctions around the harm principle, which, believe me, I don't want to talk about Feinberg for most of the conversation either. But those are basic distinctions which help people understand some of the issues. The issues really will, they get more subtle, but they originate in some of those sorts of distinctions. That Seth was getting at early on, the expression of opinion and things which sort of constitute an act, arguably, or lead directly to action. Or I'll just, I'll come back to this. The next time something triggers me <laughs> in the conversation. Well, I mean, I think what you just said, that sentence right there is one of the live issues, right? That has to do with what kinds of offense or whether or not, in fact, it's very topical, right? Are there certain things that should not be allowed to be said in public because they're triggering for certain kinds of people, right? Because it caused them psychological harm, right? That's a way in which the harm principle is being brought to bear regarding freedom of speech. Sure. I, I'm partly, I'm just presaging what I saw in Fish of the idea that in order to say anything at all, like what you said, Dylan, earlier, that there are always going to be restrictions on what you say. It's just a matter of where the restrictions go. And it's not really clear to me. I can see a free speech libertarian jumping in and say, well, no, it's actually not the case that there are always restrictions on what you say. If you're going to say there are always restrictions on what you say, what you mean is something like what Fish means when he says that, which is for a conversation to be coherent and meaningful, there are so many restrictions already in place, given the type of conversation it is, given the setting that makes accounts as a, you might say, a legitimate move in that language game. Give me a concrete example. He uses the example of a, an office setting. So there's so many things in that, you know, what is an office setting about? Well, it's about getting this work done or whatever the thing. So if you start cussing out your boss or whatever, pretty much any conversation, if you just stop and start cursing at the person, 
you're probably not, unless we've agreed in advance that this is a, a knockdown drag out argument or something like in the context of like even just spouting something that is not words, that's going to be a wrong move in the language game. So that is the sense in which there are always restrictions. So this is where <laughs> a wrong move in the language game would be something that is not meaningful. That's meaningful. Not just meaningful, but could be just inappropriate. Like that you're like, oh, why did you even say that? I don't understand what the fuck. No, it's a legitimate move in the language game to say something that offends people and is inappropriate. There's a point that you maybe I want to offend someone. In the language game, it's fine. In the office, it's not. In the language game, it's fine. The, uh, okay, so yeah, we're getting mixed up here in what, how this uh, idea of a language game applies to conversational situations. And this is maybe the difficulty in talking about what is the situation if you're just commenting online, right? There might not be really any, just on Twitter in general, it's not a particular forum that was set up with a particular purpose in mind, unlike an academic institution where you might say that the speakers that we choose to have at our academic institution, well, given the, the goal of our academic institution is to educate people. And so if we have guests there that run directly counter to that, that are preaching something like a Holocaust denial that no legitimate educator thinks is a live issue, it's only just cranks, then it sort of becomes against the rules of that language game or against the conventions of that institution to suggest or actually have such a speaker there. I don't think we need to phrase language game because I think it's misguided in this area. If it's, if it's inappropriate in the office to say something or at the university to say a certain sort of thing that offends people, that's just a matter of the prevailing social pressures within that institution. And yeah, they might be related to the institutional mission, but that's not, I think this, I, he's trying to be very fancy about this notion that certain types of speech are only meaningful against a certain ideological background, which is nonsense, I think. And in the case of the university, it's not so simple because there's actually a lot of different purposes to a university institution. And it's not just, so if you want to have a club, right? If you want to start a club where everyone has this, you know, similar point of view and that's very common and that's what's accepted and you kick anyone out of the club who doesn't have that point of view and you don't have speakers who, who disagree with that point of view, that's perfectly fine, obviously. But a university is not simply that sort of club because it serves so many different functions. And one of the functions it serves is it's a gateway to getting job and status in the United States that you're forced to essentially attend. And the other is that they're the, part of the other purpose of a university is free inquiry. For instance, it's perfectly fine if you want to make 90% of your professors left-wing or something like that, whatever the stats are that I saw recently. It's fine if you want to bar conservative professors from being at your institution and I mean, I think it's unfortunate, but I don't think there's anything that can be done about it. You can't regulate. It would be really pernicious to try and regulate that out of existence. But if you're going to allow student organizations on campus, to some extent, they have the right to express themselves and invite speakers, I think, to address them. It's not an expression of the, the official university point of view, but it's the idea that students have some sort of right of free expression and assembly within the university context and that that actually does 
serve the the mission of the university properly conceived. So this gets to the question of who's to say what their mission is, especially if it's a public institution. Does that institution itself define it? Does societal consensus define it? It's not just like some private club. It's larger than that. Well, but the universities themselves, all of them, public and private, define a mission. At least part of that mission, which might be less controversial, is having to do with education. Land-grant institutions that are all public have to have a mission specifically to educating members of their local community to send them back so that they can bring the benefits of technology and modern learning to their communities. And then the Congress has a lot of say over what that mission is if they want, in the case of public institutions. Yeah, so I guess I'm just pointing out that it's not as if the university is some kind of blank slate. In fact, the university in whatever that sort of entity is, is following a little bit of what Fish would say, is that what that institution's mission is, is part of the result of a conversation and sometimes an argument about it. And then part of these free speech things between the students and the faculty and the board of trustees and the community around them and the state that funds them and the federal government that has some context for the taxes that they're exempt from, all of those voices have different amounts of vested interest in what kinds of things happen at that campus. And part of what happens at that campus has to do with speech. So they have a live argument about what kinds of speech ought to be regulated or how open it is. Typically, it's how uncommon or how controversial of a speaker can we have. Part of the question is going to be whether a given speaker amounts to some kind of incitement, right? We get back to the harm principle. And I don't mean to go all legal on you, Mark. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying that it's one version of harm, right? Right. And you're demonstrating, I think, that there's a continuum in these different contexts in terms of how centralized the decision-making power is of who sets the agenda and what constitutes the rules of the road, the structure of the marketplace of ideas that is going on there. So that's why I think that it's misleading if we talk about everything in legal terms, but there is an analog to the legal terms on any level, that even if it's a corporation, that theoretically it's just the heads of the corporations are the ones who sets the policies. And so when you're on the job, you know, I control what you can say. Well, no, as long as there are other individuals involved and it's not just an absolute dictatorship where the head of the company has thought control over all the employees, as long as there are other individuals involved, then it's a social environment and there's going to be at least analogs of these legal issues sort of all the way up. Yeah. My point about the university is that. The way Fish defines it, it's as if it's a simple, stable thing, this mission. He treats it, again, I think, on the analogy of this sort of private club. So in the case, for instance, of the government, Mill mentions this early on, though he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, right, is people realized, you know, in the case of religion, all right, you know, this whole thing where someone gets in power and then their sister gets in power and it's Catholics persecuted now and then it's Protestants for the sake of the good of society, with religion, this is really where freedom of conscience first started really having some power. You say, yes, despite the mission, the overall prevailing values of the society, even if they're Protestant, we're going to carve out a space for dissent and for people who have different religions. Because that is also part of the good of society. And you can ask that question about a university, whether free inquiry, even to the point of allowing certain student groups 
to invite certain speakers if that isn't a good thing. And it's not just up to the university, it's up to society as a whole. And in fact, there are legal aspects to it. I mean, courts have ruled that student groups do have the right to bring on these speakers that offend people. And so we need an argument about why the courts are wrong and why schools should be able to say no. That's not to say, by the way, that we expect the administration to invite such speakers. I think it's perfectly fine if administrators don't want to invite such speakers. And similarly, if you have a newspaper, it's perfectly fine if you want to publish only liberal or right-wing authors or you you do what you want with those things. But the special case of the university is the existence of a captive populace there because they have to be there to get ahead in society and also because there is this overriding value of free inquiry where to some extent students have to be able to express their opinions with some freedom in order to do what a school is designed to do. I think you're doing a very good job, Wes, of just articulating exactly Fish's point, which is that where those boundaries are, are in fact part of the whole discussion. And what you just articulated was the reason why that principle, rather than called freedom of expression, is called the principle of free expression, ought to be given very wide berth at a university because of there being a captive audience, particularly of the students, and that has real life consequences that they, you know, in some sense they have to go there, that it's in particular the case of public institutions, which ought to be given even wider berth because of the nature of public institutions, and that the nature of the intellectual inquiry at a university is consistent with having a very, very wide berth for unfavorable or contrary opinions, and a very, very high bar that you have to reach in order to consider what somebody's saying is so controversial as to be incitement. So when Fish is saying that you can restrict speech based on the charter of your organization, this should not be seen as merely a matter of asking the people who are in control, is that okay or not? Or actually looking at the text of the charter and saying, well, you know, this charter says we should not allow hate speech or something, so we shouldn't. No, it ends up being a creative analysis, which is what constitutional law professors end up doing with the Constitution as well, that you say sort of what is the spirit of why this organization exists? What are we actually doing here? And that's something that requires deep reflection and can't just be a matter of verbatim reading off of rules or of some people in control sort of dictating. So I think that it is, as Dylan said, it's totally legitimate, whatever the actual mission statement of the university is, to read into its charter and come up with an argument that we should allow this speech, we should allow most speech, we should allow whatever, you know, four-year thing. And in the same way, I think Fish says there's something like the social contract or maybe even deeper than the social contract in a particular society, something in human nature itself that we could read into and come up with an argument that say, look, I know the First Amendment says allow all speech that does not allow direct harm, but this whole class of speech, so for instance, one of the examples that's often brought up that Fish doesn't talk about is pornography, is if pornography is in fact systematically degrading to women and in fact leads to the result of them being ruled out of the democratic project altogether. It so degrades their status that they're no longer taken seriously as citizens. One could say that is against the spirit of democracy that underlies America, whatever the actual text of the First Amendment says. 
I'm just saying this is what Fish thinks is available to us as argumentative tools. So I, I want to respond to that, and I think that's good because we're starting to clarify what Fish is actually saying. So one of his claims is that all freedom of expression occurs against this normative background, so some conception of the good. We're back into this tension between the good of the society and then individual rights. And his idea is that the right to speech is actually subordinate to some conception of the good. And not just that, that there is no such thing as meaningful free speech except in the context. Yeah, so he says a meaningful assertion can't occur really except against some background conception of the good, which is external to the value of free speech. Free speech can't be a value in and of itself, which I think is wrong. The idea of certain civil rights they can be values in and of themselves, and they can be values that override. No societal good can override them. So you can't say, okay, the mission of the university is this, therefore I get to violate certain civil rights of students. So yeah, so you get this question of certain rights that can't be overridden by any conception of the good. We can't kill people because it would overall increase societal happiness and things like that, and that's what's at stake here. So... This whole obfuscation about some conception of the good being the only meaningful background, ideological background against which freedom of speech can make sense, I just don't think is true. I think freedom of speech not only has that Mill articulates a bunch of different reasons why it's valuable and not just valuable to society, but valuable to the inherent telos of individuals something which I think we intimately associate with rights, even though it sounds utilitarian. It's a utilitarian way of getting at the concept of rights. So that's why I object to fish. I think you can say, yes, there are overriding values which are not subject to university charters or missions. So it's interesting. I feel like we're interpreting fish in a different way because I see where you're saying and there's something true in the article that part of what Fish is trying to do is provide space for having certain kinds of limits on free speech with respect to hate speech and stuff like that. You know, he doesn't go into detail on that. He has this more sort of abstract argument going on. But again, I, I take him as saying that these contexts about what is a right and what is allowable speech is intimately related to what we think is the end of good society. And again, I mean, what you just said to me seems to be exactly that, that the rights of individuals regarding how they speak is a value in itself that would be part of society. I don't see how those two things are separated from one another. In fact, you said even the telos of society. Of the individual, not of society. Okay. I just don't see them as separate. And maybe part of the way I'm looking at this is you would use Fish's argument in this analysis to push very, very hard against him on it, against any kind of, or having the bar very, very, very high for what kind of speech could be regulated. It seems to me you could have a functionally absolutist position regarding it. Hmm. I'm trying to see, Wes, how your objection to Fish differs from how he responds to the critics that he's gotten in the postscript. So he says in the postscript, I'm just going to read a quote. He's talking about uh, criticism by Holmes. It's Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Sorry, 
he's talking about a particular judgment that Holmes articulates in, in a case. And he says, this sounds fine, even patriotic, but it runs afoul of problems at both ends. The entry problem is the one I've already identified in my reply to Professor Post. The marketplace of ideas, the protected forum of public discourse, will be structured by the same political considerations it was designed to hold at bay, and therefore the workings of the marketplace will not be free in the sense required, that is, be uninflected by governmental action. Things are even worse at the other end, the exit or no exit end. If our commitment to freedom of speech is so strong that it obliges us, as Holmes declares, to tolerate opinions we believe to be fraught with death, a characterization that recognizes the awful consequentiality of speech and implicitly undercuts any speech-action distinction, then we are being asked to court our own destruction for the sake of an abstraction that may doom us rather than save us. Yeah. So my question, I guess, to you, Wes, is in what way is your criticism of Fish kind of a third way out there? Well, so far I've just criticized his, you know, sort of literature professor's use of <laughs> philosophical theory to say something fancy like the idea of free speech and even any sort of expression is not meaningful against this ideological background, which we can't actually articulate and blah, blah, blah. So just to address Dylan's point earlier, the difference between the whole question of rights and the question of other sorts of good, you know, established by university missions and so on, is we're talking again about Sandel's thin conception of the good versus thick conception of the good. We're talking about rights versus utilitarianism. We're talking about what happens behind the veil of ignorance that we think cannot be given up versus what we can tolerate within a pluralistic society. So many different forms of life, many different religions, many different sorts of opinions, but not any sort of action to undermine liberalism. So the idea with Holmes and others, and Mill addresses this directly, is this idea that some speech is so urgent, could be so damaging to society that we have to regulate it. And I think the damage actually, you know, if you think the integrity of a liberal society is an enactment of liberal principles, like, so is it more damaging to a society to suppress free speech, the sort of anti-liberal action, or is it more damaging for society to allow a bunch of people to express anti-liberal ideas. I think the former is far more damaging than the latter. And in fact, the latter allows those anti-liberal sentiments to come out in the open to be addressed and processed and neutralized and not just fester in the dark until they explode into some sort of action where you get a regime which is oppressive. And it's not the kind of oppression you wanted. It's not oppression of hate speech. It's oppression of exactly the kind of speech you thought is good for society. That's exactly right, Wes. I mean, I completely agree with it. Can we look specifically at the Holocaust denial issue? Because I think this really crystallized it, and this is something that comes up both in Fish and, well, for Feinberg, it's not in the selection we read, but in one of the optional articles, they, he deals with something similar. The Holocaust denial and then likewise the march in Skokie. You know, these are common things to be addressed here. So... The Holocaust denial thing was an example that Fish characterizes as this is something – actually, I remember at the University of Michigan, in the Michigan Daily, I think this exact article 
the case for open debate about Holocaust denial, I remember that coming out when I was a sophomore or something. And I think that's the exact same article that he's talking about in the case of the Duke newspaper here. So he's saying this is kind of when the case for Holocaust denial was launched onto the national stage because these kind of known anti-Semitic authors published this article. It was an advertisement, actually, or an advertorial, let's say. Right. Are these newspapers that are, you know, they're student run, they can do whatever they want. Not even the university. Well, okay, maybe the university would crack down on them if they do some things. But certainly it was up to them whether or not to publish this. And according to Fish's account, the editors here disagreed with the content of this advertorial, thought that it was, in fact, a crock, that it was not legitimate scholarship. But because it was used this rhetorical flourish, the case for open debate, they felt like, okay, you know, we should be promoting free exchange of ideas. Only the most horrible kind of thought police would suppress this and decide to not take the advertising money of these people and let them be heard. And Fish thinks that they were duped, that they were just duped into doing this. He's absolutely right. I mean, he's completely right. <laughs> but it's just not relevant to the rest of his argument. Yeah, it's something we would all agree on. So I wouldn't say, oh, because of free speech, I personally have to be express all opinions or my club has to express all opinions or my newspaper. If that newspaper in particular thought Holocaust and Al were a worthwhile <laughs> point of view, then there would be integrity in publishing that. But if they just think that because of free speech, they have to endorse or give a platform to that point of view, that, that of course is silly. That's misguided the students didn't really understand the principle of free speech in that case. Yeah, they don't understand what they should be doing in terms of their mission regarding inquiry. I mean, to me, the perfect parallel would be like a scientific journal in which somebody's trying to publish a a paper showing something really contrarian regarding current uh, scientific results. So the mission of most journals in this respect would be to have it peer-reviewed and, you know, the challenge there is always, are the peers going to be so close-minded as to not be willing to publish something that uh, really undermines the current way of viewing the world? And that they ought to have a, you know, be able to engage that. But that also doesn't mean that just because somebody throws out an opinion that says something that uh, undermines, you know, current theory of electricity and magnetism as being completely hoo-ha that they have to publish it. You know, there are principles that they try to adhere to regarding evidence and uh, articulation that guide when they should publish certain things. Yeah, and it could even be a partisan principle. And that's obviously different, though, than a school newspaper, which probably has an editorial page and makes some effort, you know, will express, you know, through the editorial, like, here's the opinions of the editors of the paper. But, you know, we also have as a principle that we're going to allow dissenting opinion. So it's within, arguably within their charter that they should allow in things that they disagree with. Yeah, but it doesn't mean they allow anything in there, right? It really does. It depends on their editorial Mission. So, for instance, the New York Times has a largely liberal editorial page, and they've made efforts recently. You know, they they have certain moderate conservatives who write for them, and they've hired a few recently. They had William Sapphire for a long time. Yeah, they always have a token conservative, at least. Yeah, but there's also Ross Duhat, who's excellent, and David Brooks, who's very, very hit or miss. So I used to really hate, but. <laughs> 
I think that sometimes he's not so bad. And now Barry Weiss, who's been very controversial, and Brett Stevens, who's been very controversial, even though I don't think that they are anything more than moderate conservatives. And I think that's perfectly fine if the New York Times decides they want to do that. If they decide they just want all liberal, I think that's fine too. It's up to the institution in this case. A newspaper, in many cases, it's there to advocate a certain point of view. And even as de Tocqueville pointed out, it's a way for people with similar points of view to sort of communicate with each other often. And then we call that the bubble, and it has a lot of negative effects. But, you know, it serves an actual function as well. Now, like with the blog, I've actually tried to, you know, with our blog in particular, if I think something is thoughtful and done well, I mean, I publish things which I disagree with all the time. And then people will say, oh, I knew you guys didn't like Peterson or something on Twitter. And, I'm, and I have to respond and say, well, actually, we don't have an official point of view as a Look podcast. Look at the bylines. It's and not we all, us. Yeah, and we all differ to whatever degree on different issues. And we aren't necessarily endorsing exactly position that we're publishing. So that's our particular mission, but it doesn't have to be, you know, everyone's mission. The concept of free speech doesn't necessitate that any given publication has the mission of publishing dissenting voices. Well, maybe it becomes more uh, poignant about the different kinds of governmental regulation in this respect. Like the question of either the Skokie March or the the recent white supremacy protests and fallout from that. And I guess we could also look back to other protests, you know, the protests in the civil rights era, which involved actually at least as much, if not more violence than those recent protests did. I would like to circle back to the Holocaust denier thing. I know you guys know how much I despise talking about this topic, but the Holocaust denier example is typically and even in these articles, raised to make a distinction between harm and offense. So I don't remember if it's Feinberg or if it was in the SCP article where they say, you know, like, and by the way, the Skokie March is now probably so deep in history that most of our listeners probably haven't heard of it. But if you've ever seen the Blues Brothers movie, it was satirized, I think, in the, in the uh, when they chased the guys off the bridge. But anyway... The point of the Holocaust example is typically rhetorically to draw out the distinction between harm and offense. So yes, these guys wear swastikas and they, you know, march and they deny, actually these are two different examples, but if you deny that the Holocaust took place or if you put out pro-Nazi propaganda, yes, it's offensive to Jews and actually to most everybody, but is it actually causing any direct harm? And that takes the conversation in one direction back towards Mill's articulation of it, which is about being able to see direct harm to, say, an individual, and then you expand the conversation to direct harm to the fabric of society or the liberal principles or whatever. But in the case of a Holocaust denier, this gets back to what I said initially at the, as the podcast started, which is there's an underlying statement or belief or opinion. Then there's the expression of that. And in the case of Holocaust denial, it's simply saying, I deny that this generally accepted fact is true. Or typically the way they couch it is they say, oh, well, you know, we're not sure about the number of people that were killed. We have a disagreement or we want to reassess how many people were killed. And that's intended to open the door so that they can slide in other sorts of things. But my point is, if we agree that documentation 
you know, the epistemological establishment of the fact of a Nazi campaign to exterminate the Jews is true, then my gut tells me that I'm under no obligation, nor should it be socially acceptable. I won't say illegal, but I'll say socially acceptable to dispute that fact. Like if you're just disputing the fact and saying, you know, something that's generally accepted and and well-documented, then you're just being a contrarian in such a way that's actually not in good faith. Now, what I read Mill to be saying and where I'm somewhat challenged on this is the idea that everything out there is kind of like a scientific truth. So people in past ages have been wrong. So we should examine even our most aggressively validated and held beliefs because if they're robust, they'll stand up to the challenge. So I'm caught in this kind of no man's land about my opinion about this in the sense that it strikes me as, should we just let all the Holocaust deniers continue to deny because the reality of the Holocaust and the documentation is so strong and robust that we'll just continue to slap them down or they won't be accepted? Or do we say, look, this is just not an acceptable form of dialogue in our society? And I'm honestly torn between the two. You mean say that legally or socially? Or Yeah, because there'd be a difference between social approbation regarding it and making it illegal to say. Yeah, I think socially. I mean, there's a sense in which I want to be legally like Mill and socially <laughs> quite a bit more restrictive. The problem is, is that the social mores change. And what we see is the further removed you are from an event or a fact, and the less present all of the conversation and the evidence becomes, the more possible it is to have people cast doubt. Are you worried there about normalization? Is that what you're... Yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to say. You know, that if we permit people who hold racist, sexist, whatever kind of views to constantly assert those views, there will be a form of normalization in the public discourse that will legitimize them even if they are contrary to fact and accepted workings of the social society. Yeah, and I want to jump on the constantly assert there because you know if somebody is in an insane asylum constantly asserting untruths, I don't care. Well, if they have the most popular blog in the United States, you care. But go ahead. <laughs> right, the internet raises difficulties here because all these articles are before the internet was really a factor. And so... You know, it's fine, even in a university, Fish says, for somebody to like be out on the diag or whatever, you know, street preacher to be out spouting whatever. I think clearly as a practical matter, if the thing that they're spouting is virulent anti-Semitic stuff, the campus police will probably step in. Whereas if it's just a random preacher saying you're all going to hell, that's still attacking but we just recognize that as provocative in a different way. And so it's really a matter of what the venue can stand. You know, the Internet is, a, is there's so many places on the Internet, just like, you know, we can stand people having private conversations in their homes and expressing whatever kind of racist garbage or whatever that they want. Nobody's really suggesting that we try to regulate that. It wouldn't work anyway. That's a main reason. But even if we could, that gets in too much of the thought police and trying to get in people's heads. And likewise, the internet as a whole, you might argue similarly, people set up these little chat rooms in there. I don't want to, once I bring up Reddit or something like, well, then there's another forum that could be like a newspaper that could, you know, decide we just don't want to allow any of this shit. 
So I think the question of venue is the chief one that faces us now that Fish himself seems like he's directly addressing that in any given venue, you should start interrogating what its underlying purpose is, and that should determine whether it's okay to censor anything. And of course, even for fish, the default is no, of course you don't censor. It's just like if there's a particular case of harm or of serious offense, do you entertain it or not and say, well, maybe we should censor in this way. So I don't know how to answer this venue issue either. I think it's pretty complicated. It's not a clear matter of private versus public. Public venues can't have any restrictions. Private venues, well, the people control it can make whatever rules they want. I think that dichotomy does not work. I think the word censorship is not, because I think when the student newspaper refuses to publish a Holocaust denial editorial or advertorial, if they had done that, which they should have, that's not censorship. That's just their decision about... It's editorial. Yeah, it's editorial. And I'm not saying here, by the way, something you commonly see on the internet, oh, censorship is just about government prohibitions because Mill makes it clear... In fact, he says, in a way, it can be more pernicious, the social pressures, the social sort of censorship. But by not publishing a Holocaust denial advertorial, you're not censoring them socially or legally. It's just you don't <laughs> agree with it. You don't want to say it. and You're not obliged to say it on behalf of someone else. So, so a place that this comes in because a little bit more like government regulation it would be a parallel with evolution, and the conversation of whether or not creationism ought to be taught in schools. And I could imagine a parallel argument made by Holocaust deniers saying the weight of evidence contrary to the assertion that the Holocaust actually happened ought to be given equal play in the textbooks of our high schools. Right. And that would be almost the exact kind of parallel to me because I think that evolution is just as undeniable. (laughs) Or I think the same thing extends to global warming kind of thing. You know, even things that are not as completely well established. Yeah. Like there's still plenty of room to argue. Yeah. I mean, even in cases where there might be legitimate controversy, unfortunately, you know, societies have to make those decisions about how they're going to educate people. And they will. And it won't always be the optimum decision, but it has to happen. And it's not a question, again, of free speech for someone to you know get their view into a textbook. But here's the thing, right? The only way that a quote-unquote decision gets made about how these things are going to be handled is if the government makes a law about it, right? Or if there's some sort of regulation. And so the societal norms that evolve are emergent. And insofar as individual specific interests can take control of the modes of expression, either via the internet or media or whatever the case may be, then they can essentially create or at least shape those societal norms. And I think one of the things that we're kind of missing out here on, like my inclination is to get very detailed about breaking things down, but you know, Mill was talking about the idea of the open society creating a place for the expression of truth. And that, you know, it's this sense of Ideas need to come forward, be discussed, be validated, be tested, be argued about so that we can get closer and closer to truth. And again, that's a kind of scientific model that doesn't seem to actually hold. It's an ideal that we like to think that our public discourse and our political discourse should adhere to, right? So half of the people are talking about whether or not global warming is true, or some of the people are are worried about that, and other people are using it in a political context 
to establish something with respect to regulation or you know protect industries that theoretically might be impacted by regulation things like that so i think just in the same way that we have to distinguish between propositions about things or you know facts versus speech acts like a march or yelling fire in a crowded theater or whatever we have to understand how it is that the societal norms get established and what relationship they have to truth or the validity of the norms before we can say with any kind of certainty whether it's appropriate or effective or what have you. But we can't vest in the authority the job of saying what's true. As certain as it may seem to you and me, this is Mill's fallibility principle. I think, Seth, you're worrying about how the ability of people to express themselves on the internet is going to affect, you know, it might normalize false things. It might make, I think it sounds like you're worried that untrue opinions could become the predominant opinion of a society if we allow everyone to say what they want online. They could influence people in this pernicious way. And I think Mill thinks that society can actually withstand that, that it's not actually dangerous to society to allow that. Yeah, I think I used to think that too, and now I'm not so sure. Yeah, isn't it an empirical, at least the claim is by some of the authors that we read, is that it's an empirical matter. You should really actually look at, okay, right now, do you have some countries in Europe that outlaw Holocaust denial? Does that actually just make it circulate more because like the people are not allowed to publicly voice it? And so it festers in these dark corners and, and grows and does allowing it into the open air on million grounds. You would think it would kind of dissipate it because more people would see it and respond to it, point out the forceful. But I think that's something particularly again with the, the siloization that the internet has brought about that is an open question. Yeah, we, I mean, right now we have seen the ascent of right-wing populist parties all over Europe, including such places as the Netherlands and Germany. Really scary stuff. So if you thought that the suppression was going to help prevent that, I don't know if it worsened it, but it certainly didn't prevent that. I mean, I'm inclined to think it worsens things, actually, if you allow things to come to the light of the day and then you can neutralize them. And the way to neutralize them is actually to really engage in a sober way with it as painful as it, you know, instead of saying, oh, you're a racist or this or that, actually walking the walk, leading by example, let's say, and soberly engaging such things or ignoring them. I mean, if you think they're they're not actually that influential, which in many cases they aren't, you could ignore it. But I think the other factor for Mill is just that we benefit from having to defend our opinions, no matter how certain we think they are. Often they're partial truths. We can discover flaws in them and we can amend them by having to defend them. We make them more sophisticated. We make them more nuanced if that's our response. If our response is to yell back, you know, the idea that we can socially repress something, I think that's misguided. I understand the other point of view, the anxiety about not normalizing, about not allowing certain forms of discourse. But yeah, I think in the long run it's counterproductive like Mill. Well, that will not be the last word on things, but that will be the last word for part one. (laughs) Come back next week, get the rest of the discussion. We will go more into depth on fish and hopefully get to the bottom of some of these confusions regarding venue and other issues. Or become a partially examined life citizen or a $5 Patreon subscriber and get the full discussion right now. 